You're listening to the Gender Hubcast, where academics, field workers, and practitioners come together to discuss and promote gender equality in the study and practice of peace building. We're thrilled to share conversations with our remarkable partners and explore the critical issues of gender justice and inclusive peace, making sure these vital perspectives reach across the globe. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered. In this episode, hosted by Kirsten Ainley, Hubcast guests Marsha Henry, Shoman Hardy, and Keshab Giri, dive into the messiness of fieldwork in feminist approaches to international studies. Whether you're preparing for fieldwork, making sense of fieldwork, or just want to learn more about the messiness of fieldwork, join us for these expert, incisive, and honest reflections on the power of feminist fieldwork to capture complexity and transform societies, while calling on us to navigate discomfort and to hold an ethic of care at the forefront of our research encounters. Hello and welcome to the Gender Justice and Security Hubcast. My name is Kirsten, your host for today's episode. Joining us today are three members of the UKRI GCRF Gender Justice and Security Hub. Shoman Hardy, who's based at the American University of Iraq, Soleimani. Marsha Henry, who's based at the London School of Economics. And Keshab Giri, who's based at the University of Sydney. I'm Kirsten Ainley. I have affiliations at both the Australian National University and the London School of Economics. And I'm co-principal investigator of the Hub. I'm joining you today from unceded Ngunnawal and Ngambri lands in Australia and want to acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging who have cared for this land. The title for today's episode is Engaging in the Messiness of Fieldwork, Feminist Approaches to International Studies, which is based on the participation of several members of the Gender Justice and Security Hub at the International Studies Conference held in Montreal back in March 2023. Today's discussion is a continuation of that one focusing on both the advantages and challenges that arise from incorporating feminist perspectives within research and international studies and indeed beyond. Our guests will also highlight the potential of feminist fieldwork to foster ethical knowledge production and contribute to a fairer global society. We'd like to acknowledge Alba Boer-Cuevas and Laura Shepard here, as they've been instrumental in putting together the roundtable and this episode of Hubcast, but unfortunately they're unable to join us today. So before we begin on the chat, I want to invite our guests to tell us a bit more about themselves and how they came to the topic of feminist fieldwork. Shoman. Hi, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. So my name is Shoman Herdi. I am an academic and also a creative writer. I became a refugee in the UK, ended up completing my education and returned home after 26 years. I now teach at the American University of Iraq, Soleimani, and I've established the Gender Studies Center here. I guess I just wanted to start by saying how I started realizing why feminist fieldwork and the feminist perspective on research is important. As a young woman starting out, I couldn't help noticing, like many of us, that most of the dominant narratives and the historical narrations are written by men. And in that sense, right there, the men survivors of genocide, men survivors of revolution, men leaders of movements, write their memoirs, write historical books. And in that, from that perspective, they highlight the role they themselves played and other men played in whatever subject they're addressing. And I always had this problem where I had many questions that were not answered. And those questions were usually about women and their experiences. What kind of, because men and women's experiences in reality are different, men and women's interpretation of events are different. They even recount and remember things differently. There are differences in gender, in the way people remember and memories gendered. I really had many questions about how women coped, how women suffered or survived or what strategies they had access to, what support networks they had. And in particular, I had many questions about issues related to women's bodies. And most of the time when I mentioned these questions, men would respond by either trivializing it. So a man once told me, when men were being killed, you're worried about women having access to clean clothing in prison. This is really insignificant. And another man once said to me, so one, one method was trivializing, the other method was not talk about sensitive subjects because that's better for women. So when I, whenever I ask questions about sexual abuse or rape, prostitution, um, men researchers would be saying to me, if you want to help women, then you shouldn't bring these topics up because it will further stigmatize the survivors. And I was, the stories, the sto stories I was interested in, women's migration stories, women's survival of the genocide, women's role in the revolution, were all gendered subjects that were 
where the perspective of women and many other groups were missing. And that's how I started my work in this area. Thank you very much. Kishan, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work? Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to this talk. And I feel humbled as well as intimidated by so many luminaries here speaking with you. Before I start, I would like to acknowledge that I'm talking to you today from the traditional lands of Gadigal people of Eora Nation. I pay my respects to elders past and present and thank them for their ongoing custodianship of country. I'm from Nepal. I Before I was introduced to feminist research, I did my master's from University of Essex, quite steeped in a quantitative traditional research method. And then my research, based on my lived experience, because my childhood and early adulthood coincided with conflict in Nepal, most instance in Nepal between 1996 and 2006. I was a victim of war, and then I wanted to write about it. Particularly, I was fascinated by uh, women combatants. Some of my friends also joined the Maoist group, so I wanted to write about them. But when I went to Nepal for my fieldwork, what I had on my mind was that I would do a large sort of survey, large-end survey, and then try to uncover causal impact that women would have on conflict dynamics. But then as I started listening to these complex stories of women combatants, it became apparent that the training that I had was uh, inadequate. I could not capture the complexity, the complex experiences of women in some kind of quantitative modeling and then and and then say that I represent their experience. So that drew me closer to a feminist research methodology. And then that's how I, I started studying more and more feminist research and research ethics and the methodologies and, and realized that this not only results in better research, but also it is transformative, that it seeks to change unequal structures and change it towards equal, fair, and just society. And that's how I started, like, that's how I converted into feminist research. Currently, I focus on intersectionality, and I look at, as a male researcher, how do I include feminist research tenets, practices, into my research and in, in the things, in the work that I do. That is something I'm focused on currently. Some of the things that I will talk about today is also based on our paper that I co-authored with Laura Seppert, Elba Rosabor-Gueba, and Caitlin Hamilton on decolonial feminist politics of fieldwork, centering community reflexivity and loving accountability. So my association with Gender Justice and Security Hub has been has had a transformative impact on my research. I got to not just meet so many feminist scholars, but also it had a deep impact on the way I understand research. And not just to write better, write better, do better research, but also how I liberate this for, for, the, for the betterment of society. Thank you, Kesha. There's so much here that I want to dig into already. Let's turn to Marsha to learn a little bit more, Marsha, about you and what you do. Okay, thank you. Thank you again for organizing all the organizers for arranging this panel that we had a very short rehearsal in Montreal. But I think it was good because a lot of issues came up during that panel that have been, that I think are enduring themes and enduring questions that we have in fieldwork and especially in feminist fieldwork. So I'm, I'm so glad to be able to engage in some of these. How I came to be interested in discussing and writing about fieldwork was through my own immersion and training as a sociological, as a feminist sociological researcher when I was doing my PhD. And I was struck by the kind of the oppositional experience that I had. So I had read 
in preparation for doing fieldwork in India, where I was researching reproductive decision-making and family planning from a feminist sociological perspective, I came across mostly classical, but perhaps more critical reflections on fieldwork. And I didn't realize till I was actually in the field doing fieldwork that I had, that my experiences did not bear any resemblance to what I had read and what I had learned through some of these more classical texts. And some of these classical texts were even, were feminist texts. They were texts about, mainly about three issues. And so these are the issues that I think I've been engaging with for the majority of my research career. They don't go away. I think they're staples. Those are around power in research relationships and issues around reciprocity and whether we, whether we owe something to the people that we engage in our search and whether people owe things to us, depending on how we're positioned. And I guess identities of the researchers is the third theme that I've been interested in. And I'm interested in that theme, like who is the person that is going to do research and going to do field work and how do they fit into the field or not fit in? But I don't want, I've never wanted to look at that only as a, a self-reflective exercise, as a kind of navel-gazing exercise. I've w- always wanted to look at how does that actually impact our research and the people that we work with? And what are the consequences for the kinds of things we publish? So those are the kind of three overriding themes that came out of my original, this unequal kind of, or this imbalance between what I read and what I prepared for and then what I experienced. And uh, and these are the three themes that I think um, contribute very much. And other people will talk about these experiences that relate to these themes, I think. And uh, yeah, and I look forward to saying more in a bit. Do you want me to say something about where I'm located in gender studies? Sure, why not? Yeah, I'll just say that I'm in the Department of Gender Studies at LSE. And I think that that obviously that makes me positioned in a certain way in relation to feminist fieldwork. But it also, I think, reflects this very interdisciplinary background that I have and the interdisciplinary environment that I'm working in. So it's always great, I think, to share fieldwork experiences with a range of scholars coming from different disciplines or different traditions, even if they're from the same discipline, but different traditions. And so, yes, actually coming from a gender studies department, I think situates me epistemically and disciplinary wise in a unique way. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Marcia. And I would hope that the producers of the Hubcast will be providing links to the work that these three scholars do because it's outstanding. I've had the privilege of working with all three for many years now and know a lot of your experiences of the kind of the wonder and discomfort of fieldwork, of the forms of conflict and violence, exercise agenda power that you've been exposed to. So thanks for being willing to talk about some of that discomforting experience today, because I think it really helps us understand a lot more. As you say, Marsha, identities of researchers matter. We used to imagine the researcher was a blank somehow, which is simply going and gathering data. But that recognition that our identities matter, our identities impact on the ways that we research and what we find out is really crucial. But it's also messy. And Marsha, I wondered if you would tell us a little bit more about the idea of messiness in fieldwork. So the Hubcast is called Engaging in the Messiness of Fieldwork. So why might you characterize fieldwork and perhaps specifically feminist fieldwork as messy? Okay, great. So I, I've been interested in this sort of mess, the idea of messiness for quite a while from the perspective of like literal messiness when you when things don't go right. So I'm using messiness in a very broad and literal sense. When you when your flight doesn't arrive or you show up and the people that you are supposed to meet are not there or they don't cooperate in the way that you hoped they would or, yeah, or research participants really resist and fight back <laughs> to your research questions. So there's lots of like literal and figurative messiness in the field. So I guess that's one of the reasons why I characterize it like that. But also, I guess I see fieldwork as messy. And I remember once, actually, I'm just going to go back because I remember once participating in a workshop at the British Academy, and it was about various themes in conflict and post-conflict sort of settings around security. And uh, so people were talking a little bit about their experiences of fieldwork and and. 
they were trying to carve out a space to talk about all the slippages and the messiness and the things that didn't work out quite as they'd hoped and how they responded to it. And then someone from the, I think someone from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office was like, I don't think the funders would really appreciate a section in the report that was like the messiness of fieldwork. But then all the researchers got really anxious that I had somehow introduced this messiness. And I think they took it literally in a different sense, because <laughs> there's so many senses, which was like fieldwork that did not work out. And therefore, the results are called into question. But I think, yeah, so I, I always think that it's really important to think about if you engage messiness in your reflections on fieldwork, to be really cognizant and careful about what that means for the results and the findings that you have, what you produce as your account of yourself in the field and others in the field. So messiness is, has to be with responsibility. You can't just say, this is the mess of fieldwork and this is what I got from it and take it as you will. I can't help that this person felt offended or messiness is about giving an account of the things that didn't work out and how you responded to those and some of the ethical quandaries that you have in the messiness of your work. So that's, so there's the literal messiness of things as you experience it and how you cope. But I think there's the important aspect of messiness, which is about our feminist responsibilities, which, I mean, they apply to everyone, even if you're not doing feminist work. But I think feminists have been particularly vocal about some of these dilemmas and issues of messiness. And that's partly why I like discussing these issues. Thanks, Marcia. Uh, Shaman Kishab, would you like to add anything? Yeah, if I may. So, yeah, absolutely. I agree. There is the practical sense of messiness, the driver falling sick, the guide not being there, the accommodation falling through, some questions not working out, not getting responses, other questions appearing that you hadn't even thought about, other issues becoming important in that context. But I think in terms of the ethicality, research has been produced. Communities have opened the door to researchers thinking that this research will be beneficial for them. It will carry their voice to a higher level where people would understand about their situation. And then the result, they had been very unhappy about how they had been represented, how the data has been analyzed, ethical issues about are you trying to give us voice or are you actually trying to stigmatize us further or open us to more discrimination or expose us in some way. So I think to, for all of us as researchers, we continuously, we are fragments. So there is this term of intersubjectivity where you think that, at least as a young researcher, you start off thinking that if a subject was mentioned by several people, then obviously it has this event has happened, this is true. But many times you also come across times when only one person talks about an issue, and it is true because it's a very sensitive subject that the others don't talk about. So you're continuously having to reflect about where is the truth? What does this mean? And sometimes, I think in particular, if you're an outsider coming into a community, you have your own perceptions and background. And if you end up not checking that with the informants, your understanding, your analysis of a situation, then it, you may be completely misunderstanding and misrepresenting the group. So there are many issues, ethical issues that goes with knowledge production. And what is the purpose of this research? And is your interpretation a correct one? Does it provide opportunities for having voice or does it stigmatize and bring more problems to the community research? And I think many of us try to keep these ideas in mind and try to make sense of all the mess and all the different information we get and interpret the silence as well as their voice, the intersubjectivity and the lack of it, and try to have a coherent analysis, which may even that be a challenge because sometimes it is just fragments and that's the reality of the situation and our need for cause and effect narration and things leading to other and things making sense in particular in tragic and conflict situations may not be the truth may not be how things are okay i don't think i have much to add here apart from as well as some literal messiness of fieldwork i think this came, messiness of fieldwork, particularly in feminist research, came as a response to the traditional fieldwork that is seen as orderly, linear, ungendered, unreflective, and based on superficial reflection, very individualized and created in the view of Cartesian 
binary between emotion and reason, researcher and research field, and so on. I think relationality is one way to highlight that messiness in fieldwork, that we do not create knowledge in vacuum. It is a product of complex relationships, negotiation, interactions between researchers, research participants, and the field. So I think this highlights that knowledge is a mediated process. It does not exist prior to research process. It is co-constructed by people involved in research. And it was clear, as I mentioned, my previous experience with my field work. I had something else in my mind when I went to film work in, into the field, and then it changed based on the, the relationship I developed and the, the negotiation I had, and, and and it is not always planned. So research is a complex process, and it is not only a researcher who is involved in this, but also research participants and then the broad community of research there. I think the next challenge for us is to how we make research as a collective endeavor. It is a collective endeavor, but how do we acknowledge that? How do we credit our research participants in a more equitable way? I think that would be challenged. I know there is a big debate, like who has authority final say on intellectual product. We had a discussion on this in, in, in our panel in ISA as well. But I think that's one area. If we focus more, I think we can contribute to more equitable and just knowledge production. Thanks, everybody. You're bringing up topics, which I think are some of the key contributions that feminist work has made to shared discipline and others in emphasizing that the people we work with are people who have an interest in the research questions and they may have their own research questions that they may not be able to get funding for because they're not academics, but are actually really important and generating knowledge around those questions could be useful. But they're also, as Shaman says, people who are put at risk by participating and we're sometimes put at risk by participating in the research that we do. And so asking people to think about their research in ways which don't center them, but acknowledge their impact on the research and the impact of those that they're researching, researching ideally with rather than simply researching as if their data is such an important contribution. But also, of course, then thinking about care, which hasn't come up much at the moment, but is implied by a lot of what you're saying is the care that may be needed for our research participants. What do we owe in terms of duties of care, not just institutional ethics codes, which may sometimes be mostly about protecting the institution, but what do we owe to the people that we're working with and what do we owe to ourselves in terms of care when engaging in research in often very challenging situations. I know for some of you, situations in which you've faced very significant personal risk. All right, we're coming back after experience the messiness of Zoom meetings when our Zoom collapsed in the middle of recording our international hubcast. So thank you very much, everybody, for your patience. It's great to see everybody back. Shoman was speaking about the, research, the responsibility that we have to our research participants as our call collapsed. And I'm going to ask Shoman to, to finish that thought because it, it sounded profound until I lost you, Shoman. Thank you. So I was just talking about after the principle of do no harm, it's empowering practice and how silences need to be respected, boundaries need to be respected. Research should not be extractive. It's a negotiation, as many of of the colleagues here have been talking about between us and the participants. And I think another thing I faced personally was in the middle of interviews, women were also curious about my life. They were like, okay, you're asking me too many questions. I don't know who you are. So either before or in the middle or after, there would usually be questions about, are you married? Do you have kids? Where do you live? How is your life? Who's your father? And I personally felt that I owe it to them to, to be transparent about all these things and also many questions about why are you doing this research? Is this for poetry? Is this for research? Where is it going to be published? In what language? How is this going to be beneficial to me? To be open about the limitations of your thing as well. So there were women who would come to me, for example, survivors of gas attacks who were severely ill. And they came because they thought I would be working for an international organization and I could get them help. And it was always heartbreaking, but repeatedly had to say that this is research. It may not lead to any form of direct help, but I am trying to make sure people will hear your voice and you hear your story. And this may hopefully at some stage lead to some 
help, but not directly. So these principles of being honest, of sharing power, of being open about yourself, of doing no harm, of being empowering and reminding participants that their trauma or whatever difficult situation they've gone into is only a part of their lives. It's not reducing their value to their victim or to their pain, but seeing them as a full human being and helping them also see that. So this may not happen during the interview, but in the time you spent with the people that you visit before or after or revisits, I've done several interviews where I was able to revisit the participant again and have a conversation afterwards about why we did the research and what I think of them and so on and so forth. And I think if we have time, these are very small but very important things that make sure that we care. We don't just extract knowledge and leave the person to suffer whatever the consequences may be. So, man, thank you for that. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about care, but I want to pick up on what you're talking about in terms of sharing aspects of ourselves, sharing aspects of our identities with each other, with the people that we're conducting research with. And I wonder if I could turn to Kishab, who's been doing work on intersectionality, to ask you about what the concept of intersectionality entails and how feminist approaches can integrate this concept effectively. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was fascinating to hear German talking about the ethics of care and also more on responsibility. I think that is also very relevant when we consider intersectionality. Normally, we think that, okay, our relationship with the research community um, is speaking in terms of me as a scholar based in Global North institution, going into Global South, like Nepal and conducting my research, and it involves a lot of uh, different axes of power involved. And often, when we think of reciprocity, it is not merely exchange of ideas, right? It is also in it, it's also embedded the way we can help each other out in terms of in a practical way. For example, I was, when I was doing fieldwork. I still have relationship with that fieldwork, and we exchange ideas. And sometimes I also help the community with writing grant proposals and so on. So, how do we make this relationship more local, sustainable, and equitable? Not just that we going there and then extracting the ideas, data for our own research, but also what can we do in return, and then that. For me, that also involves, as I said before, reckoning with the power and its impact on research process and the lives of people that we write on. And power is a very complex concept. Power operates in multiple axes simultaneously. And feminist research, one of the core part of doing feminist research is to expose this complex working of power in terms of gender, race, class, caste, sexuality, and so many others. Intersectional lens in this sense is essential in feminist fieldwork and research. And I want to include here a quote from Jodan in 2011. She said that my feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. It is a rallying call to critique any trajectory of feminism that does not directly advocate or recognize the experiences of people of color. While feminist approaches incorporate intersectional lens in theorizing, in analyzing, or in understanding complex working of power, it is also important to use feminist intersectionality as a methodological tool. Patricia Hill Collins said that our methodological practices are conduits or vehicles for intersectional theorizing. So it is important that we integrate intersection methodology in our research, and there are different ways of doing this. So I, when I was writing on my research project on experiences of women combating in the Marsden sense in Nepal, the, the intersectionality as a methodological tool was just being, it was in back in 2017 and 18. And I found a research article by, obviously, Patricia Hill Collins and others have written on this. Marsha Henry also writes on this. Sorry, I, I feel nervous speaking in front of Marsha here. 
Maybe you can add on to this. And there, there, was, there is one article like by Misra Gorington and then Green, who write in 2020. They use it. Yeah. Article name is Methods of Intersectional Research that came in 2020 on Sociological Spectrum Journal article. And that they use oppression, relationality, complexity, context, comparison, and deconstruction as key methodological tenets of intersectional research. And secondly, embedding reflexivity is a part of feminist practice throughout research process, including in field work. Reflexity is concerned with recognizing and engaging with our own intersectional and messy identities, as well as reflecting on contextual, economic, social, political structures and processes that shape the form and effects of the fieldwork. And in my article also, it was published in 2022, Can Men Do Feminist Research? I reckon with my intersectional identity and how different axes of power embedded in my positionality influence my research before, during, and after my fieldwork. Since we are advertising research as value-neutral, I might have missed some core element of intersectional message and so on. But suddenly that was my feeling when I, and when I was thinking through this. Thank you, Kisan. You're not alone. We're all mad at speaking in front of us. book has been incredibly important to him. Is there anything you'd like to add to that or reflect on what Kisan has said? Oh, I feel so sad. That's that's the effect I have on people. Actually, I think it's really great that you are developing Kishab and been engaged with all of your work, not necessarily on fieldwork. Chauvin's poetry, for example, in a piece that I wrote with a leather colleague, Yelka Boston, on field on some of the challenges of fieldwork. So there are many different ways in which our work inspires each other, and that's also part of the perhaps not messiness, but part of this collective narratives that we are, and it, it actually reflects what happens in fieldwork, which is this co-construction that is going on, but it's very hard to acknowledge that co-construction without either purporting that people in the field are equivalent to you, which is also problematic, or giving them a voice that they don't quite want. So I think, yes, so thank you for bringing that up. I would just say one thing about intersectionality that's partly inspired by what you said, Kusha. Which is for me, intersectionality kind of constantly reminds me. It does two things. One is I use it as this sensitizing tool. So I think about intersectionality when I come across a situation that I don't know how to proceed with or I don't know how to grasp a kind of dilemma in the field, but also outside the field. In the field, sometimes the intensity of doing field work in a particular place, you come across some kind of conundrum, some problem, some dilemma. And intersectionality can, I think, help you pay attention to things. So I use it as the sensitizing tool. And the second thing is what it does when you apply it as the sensitizing tool is it makes you pay attention to systems of power. So when I say systems of power, what I really mean is not just interpersonal power relations, those are important, but the larger systems of power that are at play. And so for me, intersectionality really helps remind me of those larger systems. So if I just think about an interpersonal kind of relationship between me and a participant, and I feel I can acknowledge in, in that this participant is exercising some power over me in the moment. And But of course, if you think about it in a much larger picture, on a global scale or a sort of, yeah, a geopolitical scale, then the power that they're exercising over me is nothing compared to the power that I hold as a result of my situatedness in the world, my privilege. And so for me, intersectionality also like really brings up those issues. It helps you navigate them. And I think in particular, Keshav, both you and I have these very different situatednesses in relation to being global, feeling like we belong in the global South or we're doing research in the global South. And then what does it mean to be from the diaspora? For you, a very new experience of being, a relatively new experience of being in the diaspora. Perhaps you don't necessarily use those identity labels in the same way that I do, but yeah. So I think intersectionality really does help me do that work 
unpacking power relations. And yeah, so thank you very much for doing that, that some of that work. Thanks, Marcia. Thanks also for highlighting the entangling of feminist communities and the entangling of the work that's done within this group. I want to come to Shalman in a minute, but I want to add a question to you, Shalman, when you're reflecting on this, because what Marcia's mentioned about feminist work is key to many of us in sustaining us in this work is the idea of building on what that's being done, standing on other shoulders, giving each other community, both as scholars and within communities of research participants. And this may be more important now than ever, the way that power is exercised against women, against trans people, against rights activists, against feminists of various forms in the contemporary world, suggests that we might need these entangled communities now more than ever. Shulman, in your reflections, I wonder if you might say something about whether the current socio-political climate is favourable to the discussion of this kind of feminist fieldwork and intersectional approaches. Thank you. If I may just add a little something to what Marsha said, I think that a concept of sensitizing oneself to intersectionality, I actually use that a lot in my teaching because I find that students, when we talk about women's rights, they are much more resistant. And then, But because they're the majority of the population are Kurdish here, and they very much understand the concept of Kurdish history being written by the central governments that have oppressed the Kurdish community, for example. So whenever we talk about the necessity of women's voices being heard, I usually compare it with the Kurdish story, and that somehow clicks. And also the fact that many students would say, oh, but women are the key, the soldiers of patriarchy, they are the installers of patriarchy. I usually remind them that's the same with the Kurdish community. We had many collaborators with the government. Oppressed communities tend to be divided, and some of them are used as tools against others. So I think concept of intersectionality is not only important for research, but also for carrying important ideas forward and making connections with students who may not understand one level and understand the other. On your question about the, the political climate and whether it's suitable, I personally speaking from this context, I think it's not at all favorable to this discussion. We have, I think, an international backlash unfolding generally at this moment, an attempt to roll back on the rights to block any new changes, to demonize activists and human rights defenders and feminists and all the different activists of different areas. This sort of portraying the activists and the academics in the field as corrupt, as disconnected from the community, as sometimes agents of imperialism. More recently in our community, they are calling us the Trojan horse. We are bringing in the destruction of a community under the name of women's rights, supposedly, according to them. I think it's a very shrinking space for conversations about rights in general and women's rights. And that's probably why it's very important to create these safe spaces where we can have these conversations. I've always said this, that the conservative forces are usually very much united, no matter how much they disagree. They agree on certain things and they work together. We haven't been very good at doing that, so... Recently, we're having these conversations with small groups of people about what can we do to create this space to to empower each other and to support each other and to have these conversations. And I think what one of the things we are trying to do here is to find people in different fields. They may be not just activists or academics, artists, those who have sports clubs for young people, those who teach music to students, whoever has similar values and wants to create a similar world to us to reach out to them, to create these small groups and conversations and to create an understanding and a foundation from which we can build. Because at this moment, I think we, many of us feel under threat. Thanks, Shalene. Kishab or Marsha, would you like to add anything to that? I mean, just echo what Shalman already said. I think there is a huge backlash in terms of discussion of feminist ideas, feminist fieldwork and approaches in I can speak of from Nepal based on my experience there, because whenever we like whenever we have any discussion on feminist issues and then we post anything on social media, the immediate response we we get is okay, you are like John said, you are receiving so dollars to to do this, you are like frozen horse, you are corrupting our culture, our tradition, and they always harken back to this culture and tradition, uh, respectability, honor of women, and so on. And then telling that, okay, you are just organizing, you are destroying, you are trying to destroy our society, you are making 
and you are putting Nepal in a trajectory towards being another Iraq, another Afghanistan, another Syria, and so on. It's very difficult to deal with this. And then, and there is a, this international connection. We are talking about intersectionality, right? How those big structures, the power structures are connected. And recently there was a similar thing with the Hindutva in India. And I have feminist friends there based in different parts of India. They also tell me there is a huge backlash and it's just very difficult for them to express themselves. And recently we got... There was WikiLeaks came out, not WikiLeaks, but there was a revelation that BJP was providing money in Nepal to uphold Hindutva, to dismantle secularism and so on. So this, all those forces are connected. This is not just isolated incident. And that, that, is, that makes life very difficult for especially people like Pramani and other Shemis scholars based in Global South. It's very difficult. They, there's a lot of vitriol, uh, backlash, and even physical attack against them. So it's really difficult. And that's all I have to, yeah. And, and, and I think you are familiar with what happened with scholars, Shemis scholars in Afghanistan. I don't need to explain that further. Thank you, Kesev. Masha. Maybe just a note, just a recommendation of a piece in case somebody's reading, listening to this and decides that they want to explore some older and newer articles. I think Kesev has mentioned a couple already. And so I was just thinking about a piece that I read relatively late in my fieldwork, this sort of journeys. Um, and it's a piece by Nancy Shepard Hughes towards a militant anthropology. And I think it relates to the discussion that Chulam and Fishev have just been having about how you, I guess, situate your own research and who you want it to speak to, like what audiences you want it to, what individuals you want to read it or you want to affect. And in that piece, if I recall uh, correctly, Shepard Hughes talks about how for years she went to continually doing her research in this environment and over the many projects she did with the same community, they continually asked for, for help in advocating for resources or political rights or political presence. And she just kept saying, this is, you know, in a way she kept thinking, this is my research project. I can't really get involved unless to a certain extent, or I can't, I won't represent them properly. I'm not from the community. So there was some real genuine thinking behind it. But after 20 plus years of returning to this community, she began to think that really there was an ethical and moral responsibility to somehow give something back to that community and to respond to the kinds of demands they had. So it wasn't just about reciprocity in the simplistic sense, but it was about like what kind of life do we want to have as researchers and what kind of lives do we want to advocate for or preserve to some extent. And so she argues for really a much more, I think when she talks about a militant anthropology, she's not talking about a militarized anthropology, but she's talking about one, one that is politically forceful, politically willful. And I think that's a really important point that I think um, Keshav and Shalan were, were touching on about the need to think about what does it mean to be a feminist researcher? What are the kind of ethical and political goals that one has in doing this research that reach far beyond the text? and the individuals that you've spoken to. And so what are our feminist political obligations, I guess, from something that I incorporate? Yeah. Thanks, Masha. So I can keep talking to you all for hours, but I think we're going to have to wrap up soon. But just before we do, let me pick up on something you just said, Masha, about the way, what we owe to those that we work with and how to frame ourselves, think about ourselves as researchers, our ethics and obligations within that. And perhaps you could each, in making some final comments, build on the idea of what advice or recommendation you'd offer to early career researchers and field workers who want to incorporate feminist approaches into their work. Maybe we'll, I'll ask Keshab first, and then we'll go to Shoman and Marsha before we wrap up. Yeah, I feel guilty of saying this negative, being this negative feeling that there is a doom and gloom, but that's precisely what makes this idea of community and kinship really important that we, if we hold together, then, then yeah, we can fight, right? And, and also that also grounds feminist commitment and the willpower 
And then ethical and political goals, we, I mean, I am not completely feminist, I'm pro-feminist, right? There are contestation with the labels. But one goal, when I decided that I'm going to be pro-feminist throughout my life, was to, that I'm going to devote my life to make egalitarian and just society. So I... That that's the political goal of doing this research, and it's not easy. I was not naive about this. I know there would be challenges. So based on that, I think for early career researcher, ethical and field workers, particularly those uh, who are interested in feminist research and reformacy, I would first ask myself, like, who I am? Who am I? Why am I doing this research? What am I going to do with this research? And what are the implications of my research? How does this research benefit my community? And what is found in the research? I think I would question myself deeply. This kind of critical self-reflection and integration is very important. This is not something you afterthought, but it is something I think we need to start from the very beginning. And... I would suggest that we we read both feminist approaches to research and feminist works, but also based on my experience, because I also read a lot of conventional work, and that gave me, uh, when I decided that I will be pro-feminist, I was well informed, like why I'm coming to this side, and then it makes this kind of eclectic reading, also makes you better informed and it keeps you better with the concepts, frameworks and tools to do your research and also respond to the people who say that, okay, you don't know much and then you can tell that, okay, I know, I am familiar with the debates in both sides of the right and then and this is why MS research is important so you can answer that with well-informed thoughts. Thanks, Kishab. Suman, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I really hope people who start doing this kind of work are better prepared than I was. I personally thought I was bulletproof and I really did wasn't ready for what was going to hit me. I think working with marginalized, voiceless, op- oppressed people, which feminist work tends to be, can have a significant effect on your life, on your mental well-being. So be prepared. I think it's very important to have a good support network academics, friendships, but also maybe if you can budget for therapy because you may need it, it's some forms of knowledge can poison you and really hurt you. They transform into illnesses, infections, nightmares, sleeplessness, insomnia, eating problems, all sorts of things. They can interfere with your daily life. Look after yourself, but also look after your informants. Please accept silence. Silence is also data. Don't always word you would expect words. You can interpret the silence and check the interpretation with the informant if you're not sure if you want to be ethical. But I think it's very important for all of us to recognize whoever we interview as survivors, not as victims. So just as you would be kind to yourself, be kind to your informants, be willing to share power, be willing to eat together, be willing to be open and addressing sensitive issues with lots of care, giving it enough space, enough time and accepting not. Most of the time, things like theft, prostitution, sexual harassment, all these taboos, social taboos are very difficult to address for people and acknowledge that. And if you are going to do it, be prepared and take no for a nap. Thanks so much, Soren. Over to Marsha for almost the last word. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think both Kinshaw and Shoman have said things that are so important and so spot on in terms of what you need to think about. And I guess I would echo both of the kinds of comments that were made by saying, just to, to reiterate that you really need to be prepared both in your thoughts and in your research, and you need to be prepared for all kinds of things. I think Choban mentioned earlier that people very often have lots of questions about your own life, your own situatedness, whether you're married, whether you have kids, whether what your parents do, how much money they make, what kinds of questions. And I think you need to be prepared that you might not always be in a clear position of power in relation to other people. You may also feel powerless. That doesn't mean you are powerless, of course, but you may feel powerless. 
And I think you need to be prepared for being uncomfortable and being out of place and all those things. And sometimes that's really hard to prepare for, but just to be aware that fieldwork has this messiness to it or this nonlinear trajectory. And I guess the other thing I would say is that there is now, unfortunately, when I started, I turned to a very traditional set of literature, although there was already quite significant feminist literature on the experiences of doing fieldwork and some of the issues. But I would say now there is an absolutely gargantuan body of work. And so you don't have to read the masters. You should really be reading feminist work in a variety of journals. And that can actually prepare you in many ways much better than reading the how to do your methods in the most clear-cut way. And I think a, a dogmatic clinging to your methods can really, I think, truncate the, the kind of connections you can make and the kinds of, and just being able to listen because people will tell you extremely meaningful, extremely important and devastating things, regardless of whether you're good at asking your questions or not, people will engage it. And I think you have to prepare yourself to handle that. And I just one thing to, to add to that, which is that very often people do tell you very devastating things and then they ask you what you can do about it. So I'll never forget being in Haiti and a woman revealing a very violent episode that had occurred to her child, her very small child, in this women's collective that had come. And then she asked me, what will your research do? You know, what will your research do for this kind of situation? And I was so under, I was so underprepared for this, the gravity of this request. And I remember stumbling in a response by saying, yes, this will go into an academic journal. And I'm not, and eventually I, I almost said, this will have no bearing on what you have said. And, and I think actually thinking about the kind of academic clinical response, but then also thinking about the human response, like the response that you would give if somebody were to tell you that in your community, your own home community. How would you respond to that? So being prepared for really being a human being, a, being a good human being, being a good feminist, regardless of the research questions and research structure. What a great way to end. Thank you, Marcia. So with that, we have reached the end of this episode of The Hubcast. I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to our guests for generously giving us their time and sharing their often challenging, sometimes messy, always invaluable and deeply personal insights on the topic of feminist fieldwork. I'd also like to thank you, Alison, for staying with us till the end. Tune in soon for another Hubcast. You've been listening to The Gender Hubcast, where academics, fieldworkers and practitioners come together to discuss and promote gender equality in the study and practice of peacebuilding. Make sure you subscribe to stay connected and be part of this global conversation. Thanks for listening.